words appear. The email addresses and groups mentioned on this program no longer exist. Blind Like Me does exist in its new incarnation on groups.io. To join, send a blank email to blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. That's blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. Welcome to this week's Blind Like Me. I'm Phil Parr. I think this is show 51. If we did 50 last week, then that would make this 51. What a brilliant mathematician I must be. R.L. Bartlett is our guest from Houston, Texas. Sir, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Phil. This is what we refer to as South Lufkin. South Lufkin, yeah. <laughs> South Lufkin. Well, uh, you know, that's uh, we get Channel 8 up here, so we get your reading service. So we're... Good. We uh, can, if I, if I can, um, I, 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 uh, I've got the, the the most difficult to operate television in the world, and my wife can't figure out how to get the subcarrier. I mean, I know it has it. Um, I think they say uh, all Magnavox TVs have this subcarrier pretty available on the remote, but I'll be damned if I can figure out how to do it. Huh? You can, in fact, find a list of TVs that uh, have a one-button SAP. Channel that's on the AD International list. Oh, they actually give you a list of. There is a list that does exist. I'll be darned. I didn't know about that. AdInternational.org, I believe it. Now, what what is the first AD International? AD is for audio description, but it's AdInternational.org. Well, you just know all kind of stuff, don't you? Oh, I stumble across a lot of stuff. My people travel. (laughs) People need to know. Uh, Let's start out by asking what uh, what is your age? Uh, I'm 61. So we're close, aren't we? Very close, yes, sir. Very close. I'll be 64 next uh, couple of months from now. Yeah. So we're very I'm kind close. of a senior citizen at the Houston Council, seems like. I'm actually older than Dr. Ed Bradley, so. Really? <laughs> By about six or seven months. So you're uh, you're considered a senior there. Uh, there you go. At, at the meetings. So that, yes. Of course, that and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee. Maybe. Uh, maybe, if you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're. By the way, while I've got it on my mind, our November thing is a go. Good. We're going to do it. We've, I've got the money to rent the conference room for two days, and that's all I really needed. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I think it'll be good. You're going to come talk to us and bring some folks with you. I'll do my best. Good. We need all the help we can get. Educate okay. these blind people. Uh, we'll tell you more about what we're talking about a little later on in the show. We want to get to get to you and your life. Now, you started out as a fully sighted person. Is that what the way I understand things? Yes, sir. I uh, 
was blessed with retinitis pigmentosa, but so I was raised and educated as a sighted person. Uh, got my first really good job as a sighted person and uh, worked at that for 18 years until my vision had failed, and they also coincidentally closed the plant down where I was working. So, But you never gave much thought to being blind as a teenager. It, just, it wasn't on your radar, was it? Not really. The uh, problems I had was the fact that I, I had night blindness, so I could not drive at night. So that's rather inhibiting for a teenager when you have to rely on a friend for a ride to do whatever you want to do. Wow. But that uh, that was the principal inhibition. There, there wasn't any uh, real concern. You know, I, I didn't know where I would end up. My parents had never taken me to a consultant or anything to talk about the future or anything along that line. So so you uh, you were born in the early 40s, 43, 44? 43, yes, sir. 43, and so you grew up in the 50s, just like I did. Child uh, of the 50s, learning rock and roll, except I grew up in LaPorte, Colorado, which everything took about two years longer to get to LaPorte. Elvis Presley, <laughs> Presley got famous in, I think, 55. Well, he finally got to LaPorte in 1957. So this was a little little town in Colorado? A little town outside of Fort Collins, Colorado, that uh, the population there was probably, at this whole little hamlet, maybe 300 if you counted the sheep and the dogs. Really? Yeah. Very small place. But but it, I would think a, a nice place for a fella to grow. You probably didn't think it was too nice then. but uh, Oh, I enjoyed it. I, I, I did. It... Uh, I think at times it seemed to be just boring, just bore you to tears because there was little to do, but uh, we managed to get out and we'd go ride our bicycles up and down the street, uh, oh, go hunting every now and then, go go plinking with our 22s and such as that. So it, it was a fairly entertaining place if you just uh, were easily entertained. <laughs> Fairly entertaining if you were easily entertained. I like that. I, I'll uh, chuck that away in my use of uh, of words. And so they had a little school. They had a school there. I guess probably all the yes, all these schools. And and so you couldn't when you got a car in about fifty seven or fifty eight. They let you drive around in the daytime, but no night driving for right for you. Yeah, uh, I held a license until. Oh, about nineteen seventy three or seventy four, somewhere in there. I the, the the tunnels had really formed up on me, and I decided that I was a, a danger to myself and to my fellow citizens on the road. So I did not re- could not renew my license at that time, and I just said that's fine. I'll so this was identification a, card at about age thirty when this happened to you. Uh, yes, sir, roughly somewhere around that. Mm-hmm. I, I assume that you had you already established yourself at a at a job by then. Yeah, uh, I came to Texas in 1966. I got here as quickly as I could, and uh, <laughs> I, like I started that. I started work with the Armco Steel Company. They had a plant out called the Houston Works on the northeast side of town, and I was hired in there to uh, work on their computer systems. I came at a time when uh, they were converting from the old 1401 computers to the System 360 computers. So basically, since the architecture and technology changed so drastically, I was pretty much on an even keel with many of the people that were there. Uh, In terms of training for the 360, I knew about as much about it as most of them did, so... Now, now, what year was all this? Did all 1966 is when we came to Texas. And, and you started working on computers then? Yes, sir. I'm a, I'm a computer dinosaur. 
I, I've forgotten more than uh, a lot of people bother to know these days. <laughs> Man, you have. If you started in 66, because... I, I used to speak uh, assembly language, COBOL, FORTRAN, report program generator, all sorts of foreign languages, and I, I spoke assembly language down to the physical input-output control system level. Now, that doesn't make any sense to anybody because it's a very, very basic level of getting uh, data from a disk drive to a computer. And uh, back then, it was it was pretty cool stuff. I really enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't know what to do with it today, but uh, I, I just uh, deal with Windows best I know how. Where, where did you learn to do? Where did you learn this? Uh, my training at college was at Colorado State University. I developed or received a master's degree in 1966, and I got married a week after that, and I got to Texas a week after that. So it was a very eventful year. Then most of the training that I had for computer programming for the System 360, I got here in Houston at the uh, IBM Education Center. Mm-hmm. Like I say, that was a time of transition between uh, families of computers. So learning COBOL was something that was brand new for us out at the Houston Works of Armco Steel. And uh, so I was right in on the ground floor, and I, I started uh, writing all kinds of Program application programs, those are batch application programs, something that's unheard of today in the online world where nothing is batch anymore, everything's online. But uh, did payroll programs, personnel programs, uh, supplemental unemployment benefit programs. I did uh, a lot of human resources stuff, developed a lot of listing programs, and just, just uh, had a general good time. We also had production enhancement programs that would provide lists for our production facilities such as the uh, number two plate mill, we had a lineup program for them, and combination mill, we had programs for them, and just, just all kinds of fascinating stuff associated with the steel business. But not only were they doing the payroll, but you were doing some manufacturing with the computer. was helping with that also. Yes, sir. Yeah, we were we were more a support function. We weren't live online with our reports, but they had to do a lot, what's, what was called a lineup where they would, show this production schedule, and uh, this production schedule would be taken down to, for example, the number two plate mill, where then they would marshal slabs out in the slab yard and line them up the way we told them to line them up, and then they'd put them in the soaking or in the reheat furnace and uh, shoot them out through the plate mill. And then uh, once they had that inf- had the rolling accomplished, the, the, you know, the roller took our instructions as to what thickness, what gauge to roll and width and all of this. And then when it got down to uh, the shipping department, uh, they, they took finishing instructions off our finishing lineups. So that's that's the way that we did batch applications that enhanced production at that time. And these were massive, big, huge room-sized computers, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, this, this was uh, back when I, I, we, we didn't have really huge computers, but we had to have uh, isolated environment with uh, protected air conditioning systems, protected power supplies, surge protection, uh, all of this, because the, the, the mainframes were so so big and so power-hungry. Uh, back then, hardware was terribly expensive, and the hired help was cheap. It's reversed itself since then, Phil. I'm sure you realize that, because the yeah. the power that I've got on my desktop probably would be in excess of the uh, fastest mainframe computer I ever supervised there at Armco. 
But now, had you not had vision, you couldn't have done this. Uh, that's probably a fair statement. I, I did rely on, on uh, vision, particularly in getting my training, yes. Because there was no talking. There were no synthetic speech programs. Uh, when I when they decided to shut the plant down in 1983, I was looking around to see what the options were, and there really weren't anything. The uh, the personal computer had just been introduced a few years before, you know, like 1981, I think is when IBM came out with their first PC. Uh, Radio Shack had theirs considerably earlier, and Commodore had theirs, but those weren't any machines that I was terribly interested in. Yeah. When IBM came out with the machine, I was interested. But there was nothing relative to synthetic speech or any any support for low vision, no Zoom text. At that point in time, I probably would have been able to use Zoom text because my vision just kept decreasing. My visual acuity kept decreasing, and I, I eventually did get a closed-circuit TV, a CCTV. Yeah. Use that for a number of years, but uh, can't use that today. Haven't used that for some time, probably for oh, five or ten years. So your vision is now completely gone? I have uh, peripheral light perception, but I have zero visual acuity. So sometime in the early 70s, it began to dawn on you that someday you may be blind. Well, I don't think I was ever much in the way of far planning and thinking. <laughs> it, it may have dawned on me, but it yeah, didn't you. stick with me. Because I, I, I continued to do, you know, I continued to, we, my wife and I had a couple of kids, and we bought a home, and we continued to do things in the neighborhood. I was the Civic Club president for a year or two, and I was a coach for my son's Little League team for a couple, three years, and, uh, you know, all of this as a low-vision person, basically. And, uh, you know, I just kept doing what I could do. That was that was important to me. Yeah. At, at 30 years old, you don't have much down the road sight. You're pretty much... Right. You know, I was 30 once, and I was... Talk about living for today. I was I was living for the minute, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. The next beer and a cigarette and, uh, you know. Well, you know, I kept saying, you know, initially it would fail in terms of distances. The, 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 it would, you know, you'd lose it... Uh, in terms of minutes, rather, it would it would take uh, weeks to lose some. Then yeah. it would take uh, week, less than weeks to lose some, days to lose some. Then it would take hours to lose some. Then it seemed like it was going every minute. Just <laughs> but, so there had to be a time when you went, "Good Lord!" Yeah, I'm... that was 1983, Phil. When uh, that that far after you gave up your driver's license? Yes, they mm-hmm. uh, they had announced at that point in time in October of 1983 that they were shutting down the plant. And I was definitely at a transition point in my life because I had already concluded that I was considered I was considered myself a safety hazard to hmm. uh, be there at work, and I knew I was going to have to do something in 1984. And then, lo and behold, they announced in 1983 the plant was going to be shut down. So that that virtually uh, assured my my pathway, if you would. So at age 40, a lot of things came crashing down on you, didn't they? Yes, sir. Uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, at age no at age forty, that was it was a pretty traumatic. It had to be because you were losing your vision, and this job that you'd worked for seventeen years was no longer going to be there, and you weren't sure you could do it if it was there. And so that was that was uh, pretty traumatic. Did that throw you into big depression or? 
I would say mm-hmm. probably yes. The answer to that, uh, without uh, much doubt, is a yes. It, uh, you know, I had uh, talked to some friends that, that I'd worked with, and we thought, well, we'll start a little consulting business. I'll be the be do the work at home. I've got a computer that I bought a little uh, Univac system that ran the DOS operating system, and it had a very good monochromatic. Uh, uh, CRT thing, and uh, I could still read that pretty well. So you know, I was—I would have to get my nose up to it. But I, you know, we tried that for a little bit. That never really panned out very much. I did have an interview with the Texas Commission for the Blind at that time, and talked to the young lady, and she said, "Well, we want to do this and this, that." And I said, "Well, I'm not interested in this, this, and that." I said, "I'd like to have the Talking Book Program, and I'd like to have." Uh, Houston taping for the blind radio. And I said, above and beyond that, I don't think I'm interested. Well, they wanted to send you to Kerrville for assessment well, to see what that's you essentially it. could they do. To see, you uh, know, whether I could uh, cane chairs or build brooms or some damn thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just really wasn't interested. So. It can, could be very discouraging. But you, uh, and you had this little computer system that you were booting from a cassette and. and uh, you could do no, it. it was actually from a floppy disk. It was oh, yeah. a five-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. Oh, that's, that's modern for 83, yeah, 84. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a cool system. I, I, I went real out there as far as getting the machine because it came normally with 64K of random access memory, or RAM as we say today. Yes. I said, that's not near enough. I went to 128K. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Big. Yeah, big, big time. stuff, big stuff. Let's uh, <laughs> let's take a little break, and then maybe we'll we'll follow your path of life as you continued on as a blind uh, person or legally blind person from 1984 on. Back in a minute with more of our little show called Blind Like Me. Hang on. Our crack research team certifies screen reader friendly. Now, with this week's blind sight, here's Tim Cummings. Have you ever been in a situation where you get off the airplane and you're trying to locate your luggage as it's going around and around on that carousel? Well, if you've been in that situation, then you might want to go take a look at www.luggagelocator.com. This is a site where they sell a neat little device which consists of a transmitter and a receiver. And the transmitter fits on a keychain and the receiver attaches to your suitcase. And what you do is you just activate the transmitter when you get to the carousel. And the receiver has a little beeper and also a little light on it which can help you locate which luggage is your luggage. And I would assume you can use this device probably on a lot of other projects as well. Again, the website is www.luggagelocator.com. I would give it a screen reader friendly rating of a 9. And this is Tim Cummings until next time saying, keep on blind sighting. If you found a screen reader friendly website you'd like us to mention, send your email to blindlikeme, all one word, at txucom.net. And join us again next time for Blind Sight. Now your mind is
desires of vacation. Free to join in fun and plenty of recreation. We're visiting uh, today with Ariel Bartlett from Houston. Texas, um, and you are just a sort of an aside. You are you're a Texas president of ACB, is that right? Uh, no, no. Uh, I'm the first vice president of ACB. Of okay, Texas. all right. First vice president of ACB. And, of and Texas. please call me Bob. Okay. Is that what everybody calls you? Yeah. I had wondered. I have then. RL on my uh, RL. identifier on email. But, but you're uh, Bob Bartlett. To Bob is it? Everybody. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, let's continue. We, you uh, you uh, began, I guess, began losing your sight long before you admitted it. But in 1983, the job played out, the sight played out, everything. Life was about to change for Bob Bartlett, no question about it. Uh, you still, your, your kids were, uh, what ages then? They were, they were uh, still my kids, weren't they? My daughter was 10 and my son was 16. So you had to do yeah. something. I uh, had to figure out which direction to go, and fortunately, I worked for one of the finest companies in the world, and they had an incredible benefits program, so I was able to get uh, long-term medical disability with them. Oh, wonderful. And that uh, was as a result of qualifying for SSDI. So I had some income assured, and then uh, my wife also went to work at that time, and uh, we we muddled on through. Uh, The one thing about it that I found most uh, helpful, I think, was the fact that I had talking books, and uh, I uh, could use those as an escape valve to, to help me through the day. Uh, when I first got my uh, taping for the blind radio, it was one of the old style that we have that uh, we no longer issue, but it was one where it plugs into the wall, and you have to sit there in your rocking chair and just be a just don't don't move as long as you want to listen to the program that's on. Yeah. You know, that did not accommodate my lifestyle of getting up and moving around. So once I found out that they had portable radios, which was in 1986, I got one of those, and I've been a faithful listener of that service ever since. So the portable radio that receives the subcarrier frequency. Yes. Um, I didn't realize that it's they made battery-powered or AC-powered. It's got a cord if you want to use that. So it allows you to actually go out in the garage and fiddle around or go outside and fiddle around or you know go go to throughout the house and uh it's it's just much more convenient because if I'm listening to a show I I don't necessarily want to miss uh whatever's up next because I don't have the radio uh, to take with me yeah. an accessibility issue so well, and, 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 and even today, there's nothing like a good book to get your mind off what you perceive as your troubles. No question about that. Uh, I love to read, and I, I love the talking book program as well. I don't usually listen to the books that we play on Taping for the Blind because they require that you're, you're at uh, a given place at a given time. Every day, yes. Yeah, every yeah. day. And that's not, uh, not possible because I, I do get out in the community quite a bit as well. But you do read uh, a good bit of talking book stuff. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. the that's the one thing we'll have to say that the feds did right, yes. and that was that is about a, that. I don't and I that. also do get books that we play on the air at taping. Uh, we will make those available to uh, our clients uh, free of charge on cassette or CD now, and uh, you know. So it's for example, I've got a book over there 
is the one by Larry Durker about baseball is ain't rocket science or something like yeah. that for the title. And that's one that uh, Bill Brown, the television play-by-play man for the Astros, did for us. He volunteers for us in the off-season. And he did that book, and I've, I've got it over there ready to read when I just find some time to put the, put the cassette in the machine. Now, they try to do books that they don't think APH is going to do, or what? Uh, usually, we will get books that are on the bestseller list, and we try and get them on the air before the, Amer- uh, before the Talking Book program will make them available. Yeah. Talking Book usually takes 6 to 12 months, and maybe they will, maybe they won't on any given book, but uh, we try and get... Uh, more of the best sellers, and we try and get them on the air more quickly than uh, make them available to our customers more quickly than the Talking Book program. Can. I've gotten two books lately that uh, were from Random House that were read uh, for the commercial world that they have adapted for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I so obviously they've made a deal with somebody to. Phil, I think the sighted world has discovered what a good deal having books on tape is because you've now noticed that in today's publishing yeah. world, you don't only publish a hard copy book, you publish the uh, cassette tapes you bet. right beside the book. And they all have their own production values, although I, I tend to, I don't like abridged books. You can buy abridged books just everywhere. Yeah. I do not like abridged books. If it's good enough for the printed word, it's good enough for me to listen to. Yeah, well, I, I I do Audible, and and all we get is is unabridged yeah, uh, yeah. books, and I get I'm on the two book a month thing from Audible because I can't now that I've started reading, and I didn't start till about 1990. I, now that I've started reading, I can't be without something to read. I just I, I go true. nuts. <laughs> I, I can't handle it. I, if I an APH can't supply me, yeah. I read two, three books a week, every week. I've got a lot of time, and, and I spend a lot of time. And, and I, I read while I'm eating. I read all the time, constantly. I don't know how I live without it. I don't know what the hell I did <laughs> before I started reading. I must have been a really dull fellow. But well, Like I say, that's what bridged my depressed state from uh, 1984 to... Well, my dad passed away in 1986, so I spent some time with my mom up in Colorado. And eventually, we moved her to Texas in 1988. So, uh, so I helped her sell the place up there and, you know, do do the things that a good son ought to do. And uh, so, talking books did help substantially sure. when I was going through all of, all of that crisis as well, so... Did they uh, did the commission do anything for you? Were they ever able? Did you ever go back to work in any Actually, capacity? Phil, what uh, in 1997 I decided it was time for me to get back with the program a little bit more because I was actually out in and doing more things on a volunteer basis, and I needed to have our paratransit service made available to me, and I needed to have uh, a computer that I could use, and so they actually took. Uh, they, they said, we, we appreciate your, your volunteer work, and while we recognize it's work, it's not a real job, so we can't buy you a computer. And I said, that's fine. I can probably do that myself. But they said they will help me find adapt, adaptive equipment or programs, mm-hmm. and they will also give me some training on those adaptive programs. So they flew me to San Antonio for a day, spent a day in the lighthouse over there looking at various and sundry computers and various and sundry types of software, and... Uh, all kinds of fun little gadgets over there. Really like those folks. Uh, Mr. Emily was the 
caretaker over there. I don't know if he's still there, but he, he ran a great shop. And uh, so I selected Jaws and selected uh, the, the hardware that I wanted. So I, when I came back to Houston, I was able to, to get hold of those products. And then they trained me. They gave me two 40-hour training sessions with a a trainer that came to the house and uh, helped me to figure out what Jaws was and how to use it and what Windows was and how to use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he talked me or suggested that I start using Eudora as my email program, and that was that was such a wonderful gift. I, I would not fight Outlook Express for nothing anymore. <laughs> I wow. have to use Outlook Express a little bit, uh, but I as as a general rule of thumb, I, I use Eudora just almost exclusively, and I just love Eudora. If you cut out, if you close a lot of the windows that are open by default in Outlook Express, it works quite well. Okay. But you have to know yeah. what to close. I bought I've a... never taken any serious training on it. I know I just have to have to deal with uh, getting mail off a mailbox and forwarding yeah. it on to folks, and I can do that quite successfully. <laughs> I, I bought a little thing, and I can't remember even who did this, called Listening to the Internet about five years ago, mm-hmm. and it showed me how to adapt Outlook Express so that it so that Jaws works with it quite well. Yeah. Uh, so basically, you spent about twelve years getting used to being blind when you when you look back on it. Well, uh, I would say it's closer to eight, Phil. Uh, in '92, right. I, I got a little more active in the community. I became a director on our uh, my credit union, and I've been a director on the board at that credit union ever since. I've served there as president for three years and secretary, recording secretary for three years. Was very successful at both. Uh, when I left as president, the, the greasy side was still down and the shiny side was still up. <laughs> customers were still happy. That uh, yeah, that was quite good. an accomplishment as far as I was concerned. How, how but, did uh, you how did you get that? I mean, how did you get that that position? Oh, I'd been going to those annual meetings for years because I'd been a member of the credit union. It was originally the Armco Credit Union. Okay. And uh, I'd been going to the annual meetings, and I'd, in the 19, early 1980s, I was on the board for a year and uh, then did not win my election next time around, but I continued service as uh, educational committee member and wrote the newsletter and things like that through the 80s. And uh, then when I went to... This meeting in '92, they were having a real severe problem finding people that they considered qualified to uh, occupy director seats, and they did consider me qualified based on my service to the credit union, and so they elected me then. And like I say, I've been a part of that ever since. Now, I've also been uh, once, I, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, once I got my portable radio from Taping for the Blind, I've been fairly uh, consistent in my listening habits with them, and I've been one of those people that would call and comment on uh, uh, the performance by the people that are doing the narration, doing the work, and thoroughly enjoyed that. Got to talk to a number of them, and they, they love having feedback. As, you know, as an audience, the blind community is so dang quiet, and uh, people that run radio reading services throughout the United States will tell you that they're just the only part about it they don't like is the fact that the audience is so quiet and doesn't ever comment. Uh, it's kind of like they think, well, if I say something critical, they'll take my radio away. And no, we're not going to do that. We're just trying to improve our product. But uh, as a result of my 
communicating with them on a fairly routine basis, they decided that might be a squeaky wheel that they ought to put on the board. So yeah. in 1994, uh, I became a member of the board of directors at Taping for the Blind. And, uh, let's as, let's go back just a second. You okay. said you did the newsletter for the credit union. How did you do that? Uh, that was uh, mostly just sit there. I was using uh, my old Uni, Univac uh, PC with the with the bright monitor, and okay. uh, just sat there and wrote the dang thing using uh, WordStar. As a matter of fact, <laughs> so but you could you could see well enough then yes. to okay. I well, if I could get my nose close enough to it, yeah. And my wife, bless her heart, she would proofread it for me. So we we would get a quality copy out for for folks. And but you didn't have ZoomTech. They didn't have that back no. then, did uh, they? Didn't have any way of, of enlarging. So you just got the biggest monitor you could find. And got as close to it as you I could. Just, I just got it. Monitor didn't change. I, I that was the one that came with the system, and I just got my nose up next to it. <laughs> it squinted a lot. Uh, well, that probably didn't help those eyes. One, one <laughs> well, it wasn't going to do them any good. wasn't going to do them much. They more. weren't going to get any better. So what the hell? Just better. go right ahead. <laughs> so you did the newsletter for the credit union. You became president of the credit union. So you didn't take nearly as long as I thought. I thought you just sat around for ten or twelve years. And well. Listen uh, to the radio. It uh, it probably didn't take quite as long as, as one might think. It uh, getting past my dad's death and getting my mom resettled that that I think helped to give me something else to focus on besides my sad situation. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the children were growing and yes, they're yes. they're they're grown and gone now, right? Yes. They're uh... my son is thirty five. He lives in Austin and uh, currently employed with Accenture as a technical support analyst. My daughter is uh, 30, and she lives here in Houston with her husband uh, in a lovely subdivision called South Fork, as a matter of fact, on Ewing Drive. <laughs> uh, is that right? That's, yes. they, they would be. What, that's, what is that off of? What major highway is that uh, off of? 288. Okay, I know where you're near, talking about. near Paraland. It's on the yeah. west side of Paraland. But, so uh, if your son's got a job in the in the computer uh, industry, he's a lucky man these days. I'll well, tell you what. he also is is very technically competent, which pleases me because when he comes to town and I have a problem, he can fix the dang problem. <laughs> yes, sir, he can. <laughs> My daughter works for a not for profit um, dis- media or dispute management or dispute resolution center down in Houston. Mm-hmm. That's part of the bar, sir, Houston bar service that uh, helps people to, to resolve disputes. She's in human resources and finance there. So. And, and I guess you, you still have the same wife? Yes. She, she stayed with you through through, through everything? She stuck with me through thick and thin. She hasn't kicked me out. Uh, we've celebrated 38 years. That's, uh, that, that's a heartwarming story, uh, you know. Well, uh, you know, we truly did love one another, and she loved my family, and I loved her family, and uh, so it's you know our our kids have been the light of our lives. We just uh, and we're still best friends, Phil. I think that's the whole secret. You find somebody that is your best friend ever. Uh, you can transcend a lot of difficulty. Yeah, there are a lot of things that one can one can get by. Let's uh, what uh, so this is two thousand four, and you are. Uh, Consider yourself retired, I suppose. Actually, I consider myself a professional volunteer. <laughs> okay. All right, well, On my business card, it says registered professional stoic. <laughs> I love it. 
just a chain puller. I like to see if I can get people to react to that. So you do much volunteer work at this point in time? Yes, I do. I'm uh, busy with the Houston Council of the Blind and with ACB of Texas, of course. I'm also uh, president of the board at Taping for the Blind. I'm the first client to ever serve as president of that board of directors. And uh, I also serve the city of Houston on the Houston Commission on Disabilities. This is a cross-disability group that was created by uh, city ordinance back in just after the ADA came into law. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm appointed by the mayor of Houston, Texas, uh, to the chairmanship of that. And it's it's just an honor for me to do that as well. It's uh, we get to do a lot of fun things, but mostly we're trying to make city government more accessible for people, and that that can certainly be a challenge. But uh, I think you can do more at a local grassroots level because you know who those people are, and though you might know people in the uh, upper stretches of state government or federal government, your access to them is very very limited. But I've gone to city government, and I've, I've testified a number of times on behalf of the commission and personally. And those those folks down there, they, they say, oh, here's this clown again, okay? <laughs> but you deal with people other than blind people. You're not yes. Just... That's one thing that I think we need to, to really do in the, in the disability community. We need to do coalition building if, we're, if our voices are to be heard. And uh, so this, the commission that I'm on has people with brain injuries, people that are in wheelchairs, people that uh, have hidden disabilities. You know, we've, we've, we pretty much run the, run the gamut. The way the uh, thing is organized, we've got 12 commissioners, and nine, nine of the 12 have to be people with disabilities. And uh, the, the so, charter says that. Yes, the ordinance itself says okay. that. Okay. And then the other three can be people that uh, are interested or work with people with disabilities or something along that line. But uh, you have to have a, a basic group of folks with disabilities, and it does cross disability lines. And it's been very educational for me because I, I tend to be not very knowledgeable about a number of other disabilities. I'm fairly knowledgeable about blindness, but that's about it. So this has been a wonderful educational experience for me, but uh, also a challenge to try and mold this group into uh, achieving goals. And I think we've done a fairly adequate job of that. And it's really funny because I think blind people are the only disability group who does this. And what blind people will do is get in their own community and have only blind friends and associate only with blind people. And you see this all the time. I've I've got a couple of friends that I dearly love in Dallas. The only friends they have are blind people, and I don't, from the life of me, understand that. And blind people are the only we're the only group who seems to seems to do that, and and I don't I have no idea why. Well, Phil, I think the other groups tend to tend to stick to, to themselves, like the deaf community seems to to primarily uh, befriend other deaf people. In the the uh, wheelchair community, you find a lot of that as well. And oh, do you? It's just because you have, you know, it's it's again sharing the common experience of well, what do you do to solve this problem? Uh, within the blind community, we have uh, all kinds of challenges for access problems. Well, same thing for people in wheelchairs. It's just that they're different problems than what we have to deal with. 
But they, well, I think they tend to tend to flock together as well. Do you think so? I, I maybe I just haven't been around enough to notice that, but I sure notice it in the. It's been my observation as as uh, part of this commission that uh, that that seems to be the case. You know, and uh, you know, you go out to the Houston Center for Independent Living, and you find the wheelchair people all kind of stick together. They're all out. In, one little corner, and then the deaf and hard of hearing folks will be in another little corner, and it's just kind of odd like that. And the blind folks will be there. Well, the blind folks will be lost off in the third corner. Be lost off in, the, in, <laughs> in their corner. Well, it sounds like your life is is uh, uh, is is full and rich, and and uh, you don't you don't you didn't uh, you didn't uh, just quit living because you lost your eyesight. Absolutely, I, I think uh, I'm busier today than I was when I was working for a living. There, there are days that I just think, oh my God, I don't have time enough in the day to get everything done I need to. And uh, I think life is too short not to get out and enjoy it, meet people and do things. And I, I think it's incumbent upon us to be active and try and support uh, disability causes, whether or not, uh, you know, depending on how you choose to do it, it's, it's one thing, but, you know, there are some folks that just are not going to do that. They're they're just going to yeah. only gather together just for social purposes, and that's fine. When uh, I was president of the Houston Council, I always made sure that we have time for social time as part of the meeting. We'd have a business meeting, then we'd have our refreshments, and then our program, and then we'd have social time after that. Because it's important that people have an opportunity to talk to one another if they don't get to see each other but once a month. And uh, I, I fully concur with the fact that people need to get out and be able to, to exchange ideas and thoughts with one another and do it face-to-face, not just on the telephone. So I think that, that's something that is important. But I've, I've chosen, you know, once I got to uh, paratransit service capable, qualified or whatever, I uh, have, have been doing more and more getting around town doing doing stuff. And, you know, activity is what keeps us from, from seizing up and dying. So You keep I, I, that keep that brain active and they yeah. say it won't atrophy on you that, if that's you, the you whole, keep it going. Whole nine yards about it. I, I tend to get up early in the morning and I tend to do exercises in the morning. And I have a regular exercise program. I found one of the great stress relievers in one's life is an exercise program. If you just get get out and work up a sweat no matter what you get to it's a great stress reliever. Well, now you're making the rest of us feel pretty bad. Uh, I hope so. You <laughs> hope so. All right, well, just for that, I'm leaving. That's it. Listen, uh, you have your life together, and I'm looking forward to shaking your hand uh, on the 5th or 6th of November uh, down in Houston, Texas, sir. That's going to be my pleasure. We've been visiting with Bob Bartlett from Houston, Texas, back in a minute with more of Blind Like Me.
live music and karaoke. This Sunday morning, we'll record our 100th Blind Handyman Show. And we've got something special planned for Sunday afternoon. Then it's Sunday night and time for more live music and karaoke. All in all, a great weekend to meet old friends and make new ones. For more information, call 936-634-9500. Or email philpar at txucom.net. Reservations and meeting room space are limited. It's first come, first serve. Join us in Houston, Texas this November, and we'll guarantee you a weekend you'll not soon forget. 936-634-9500. We were visiting last time we saw you with a fellow named Rob Jacobs from Boston, actually, I think from Brookline, Mass., he uh, lost his eyesight through a kind of a fluke thing. He was involved in a drug uh, test, and we're testing a new drug, the FDA was. They, uh, he got outside the limits of the test, and they simply kicked him off. I mean, they simply told him, go home and go blind. So certainly anger and things of that nature. And he's written a book about it. I haven't read the book, but I'm, I would imagine it's a very interesting book. But we'll continue. Rob has uh, now gotten with uh, some people who did some blindness training, and he's learning computer and things like that. He was a graphic artist, and he has his ability back to write. So let's join Rob Jacobs in the middle of this little interview, okay? I always loved to keep... I've always was a writer, whether for publication or not, to keep journals. I could write... I could sit at my computer, and I could create text files again. That was the start of something. That was the start. And as I say, the the adaptation never completes itself. And there are days I still long to be able to just look out and see what a summer day looks like. But I know I can't. This is where I am right now, and this is what I have to accept. All right, you have alluded to your book. Let's let's get into that. Okay. What is your book about? Uh, why did you write it? Just tell us about it. Okay, very good. After, let's see, 95, I lost my sight. By 98, I realized that I had gone through two of the most hard winters we had here in New England in, in decades. While I was learning my orientation mobility, I was out there on the street with my white cane and my teacher, and there were frequently many days where he would say, Rob, it's just too dangerous for you to go out. I can't even teach you on this day. There's just too much snow. And uh, those winters were, were awful. I would, I would really break down. And the good thing about this instructor was that he was a very compassionate man. He could have been a therapist as well. So those days that we couldn't go out, he'd sit and he'd listen to me. He'd listen, and maybe that's what I needed. As much as I needed to learn how to walk with a cane, I needed someone to listen to me. And he was very empathetic. Uh, oh, hello? Yes, go ahead, sir. Oh, okay, I heard a click. So I, I did, too. Go ahead. Okay, we, uh, we, I did learn. He was willing to give me as many lessons as it would take until I uh, felt, Joe, I don't need your services anymore. I, I think I've got it. And if he said, yes, I think you got it, it was me and the cane from then on. And I kind of trained the dog, my little Yorkshire Terrier, 10 pounds of Yorkshire Terrier, to help me, guide me home if I ever got into a little bit of trouble. And, of course, I didn't depend on him as a guide dog. And people would often ask me, is he your guide dog? And I'd say, no, uh, but he does a good job at it. However, he didn't pass the height requirements. He's only a 10-pound dog, you have to realize. Uh... I get around with a cane fine right now. Actually, I'm, I've been called quite skilled at my cane. I get around the city. I get around wherever I need to uh, with the cane. Uh, I learned how to live. 
But after two winters in New England, which are very long winters, I was sad. On top of being sad for the loss of my sight, I was sad because I no longer could participate in the things that I loved that had to do with winter, the outdoor winter sports, the beauty of the snow, the, 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 the skiing, the skating. Um, to me, winter was just when a time when you needed to have lots of extra layers of clothing, carrying around with you, always losing gloves, always losing scarves, standing at the trolley stop waiting for the train to come through in the, in the uh, fighting car. Rob, Rob, Rob. Yes. We're, we're getting very close oh, okay. to, you need to talk, can you tell me about the book a little? Yes, okay. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm slow at leading up to things, excuse me, Phil. Okay, I found that I had to reinvent myself. I had to, so I needed to find a warmer climate to live. And I found, I tested a few places, I found Key West. At that point, I wanted to create a new identity for myself. I was no longer Rob the artist. I had been writing all along. I wanted to, my blindness, what I was learning through this experience, to serve a larger purpose. So I wrote a proposal to a local newspaper editor, and I sent in uh, a sample of the first three or four columns that I would write. It was a proposal. I asked, you know, I'd like to write for this paper. Uh, I wasn't expecting to make money off of this. This was just a, a foothold in a new career for me. And... She said, okay, we'll publish she, after the She read the proposal in the first uh, draft of the first few columns. said, yeah, we'll publish you every other week. The first week it was such a success that she said, okay, we'll publish you every week. Now, the intent of the column was to actually speak on a level with uh, the general public, on a level where they're not face-to-face -face with a blind person. They don't feel the awkwardness. They are, I realize that a lot of sighted people are very awkward. They don't know what to do. And, and, or sometimes there's fear involved. There's a lot of, we can analyze that in a lot of ways. But I wanted to speak very plainly. And then I realized that what I was doing was enlightening a lot of people. I was writing very entertaining columns. Uh, I wasn't speaking down. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I was teaching people without them realizing they were being taught because I'd use a lot of anecdotes. Well, uh, after a year of writing this column, a lot of things were happening to me during that year that I was writing the column. And while I was writing the column, I was also keeping my journal. And some, some horrible and some wonderful things happened to me. And they influenced the themes of the column. By the end of the year, I was ready to move on to a larger audience. I was ready to syndicate the column. I was looking for other opportunities. When I read my journals and the stories that I'd written that were not published in the columns or what had influenced the columns, I realized that it was my duty at that point not to become a syndicated columnist, but to integrate those stories with the columns. And that's exactly what the book is. It starts out more columns, then stories start creeping into it, and the plot starts growing. The, the, the columns are about, you know, I had a word limit on them, limited to about 900 words. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like the scenery. They set a backdrop. They set they gave the setting of what a, how a blind man lives, uh, what Key West is like, different adventures, uh, different uh, interactions with people. And they set the background so people could sort of understand it, how I perceive the world. And then the story happens. So when they start reading the story, they understand it not from a sighted person's point of view, but, my God, how would this 
these things that are happening to him affect a blind individual or a disabled individual. Now, overall, when I describe the book, I like to... The book isn't written for sighted people to learn what it's like to be blind because I realize that blindness becomes almost a metaphor for just all the obstacles people face in their lives. Obstacles could be mental illness, they could be physical illness, uh, they could just be the hardships people go through. Blindness, on, on, on the highest level, maybe you could look at that book, or I should say the top level, you could look at that book as what it is. Anecdotes, stories, some of them very funny, some of them rather touching, some of them very sentimental, some of them rather tragic about things that happen to a blind man. You could look a little bit deeper in that, and you could say, well, take the blindness equation out of it and see that we all have difficult difficulties mm-hmm. that we need to learn to overcome. Mm. And that's why the appeal of this book has been, has been much wider than talking about blindness. I sure they may not realize they're learning a lot what a blind man or a blind individual goes through in daily life, but they are also learning how to find the strength within yourself to accept the situation that you're that was given you that that life cast upon you and and make the best of it. Don't sit around and moan about it. Find your strengths. Uh, we don't want. I may not want to be blind, but I am blind. So I've learned so many things since I've lost my sight that I probably never would have learned otherwise. <laughs> They're called insights, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly. And all of a sudden, I'm reading a lot of books. I'm learning. I'm writing a lot more. And I'm finding things out. And these lessons are so applicable to people who are sighted. The sighted people don't see. They don't look closely at things. I guess sight, the light-dependent, the sighted, are rather distracted by that world around them that is giving them all this information through their eyes. Therefore, what they're looking at, they're not necessarily seeing. Uh, I make them see things farther, deeper, look at the meaning inside of things. Most of the things that they're looking at are superficial. The things that people place their values on are based on sight, style, uh, and whatnot. Those Those are superficial design and it's just, this is funny coming from someone who's a graphic designer, but it gave me a different perspective, a new way to look at the world. I look into other, I started looking to different forms of spirituality. I started looking to different philosophy. Um, I make people think differently. And I want that to be what people come away from after listening to or reading the book. Sighted people receive 70% of their sensory information through their eyes. Right. Through their eyes, and Uh you aren't now burdened with that. All your information comes (laughs) to you through your ears or sense of smell or touch. Exactly. And uh, that makes a difference. And then, Michael, yesterday, just just to go back to that beginning anecdote about being the handyman, when he was trying to do something with his eyes, I would say, step aside. I'd use my fingers, I'd do it tactfully. Yeah. I'd feel how deep the hole was, was it at the right angle. He was trying to look at something and see it, and he couldn't visualize what I could visualize tactfully. I, I knew how to put things together. I knew what had to fit into what. And, uh, yeah, and in his case, his sight became an encumbrance, yeah. which is a very, very odd thing. <laughs> no, say. not very odd. Not <laughs> In my really. case, it's a, it, it just gave me more of an impetus to say it can be done, and it will be done. All right, we are getting very short of time. Do you okay. have an address? How is this? What format is this book in? 
Okay, it is in a print format, which would be available in stores or through Amazon.com. Uh, any store could order it because it's listed with Baker and Taylor. Uh, for the visually impaired, it could be ordered through the National Library Service talking book system. So it could be ordered through anybody's local library. They will submit the uh, request to Perkins, uh, Perkins Talking Book Library where the book was recorded. Okay. And it could be accessed on the, on the free loan system through the NLS Library of Congress. All right. Talking book system. So this book, I felt there was, a, you know, I wanted to be, but it was also a social obligation to make this book accessible to the visually impaired sure. and blind. And uh, this is one of my goals last fall. I said, right. uh, "Can you? Can, oh, I don't think we've, we've we haven't named the book yet, even. We haven't, have we? No. Okay. What this is the, the name of the book. Uh, and maybe now you'll understand why when I told you about my trips back and forth to Key West. Yeah. It's called The Songs of the Blind Snowbird. My column is called The Blind Snowbird. And I collected these columns and I integrated them with the stories. So I kind of used the play in words of a song of a snowbird being uh -huh. a songbird. And altogether, any one of these pieces can be taken out of context and read. And that was what was very important to my editor, that a column can be read as a standalone. But when you put it all together and you read it sequentially, you'll see the story. The Songs of the Blind Snowbird is a compilation of the, the Blind Snowbird column with the stories. Uh, in the beginning, as I say, it's more of the columns. Then it starts getting integrated with the stories. And by the end, it's not columns, it's all stories. And it's the resolution of a lot of the events that occurred. I was involved in, uh, in quite a few catastrophic events during that right. year. Uh, songs of a Blind Snowbird. Of songs, the of blind, songs, songs of, of the Blind Snowbird. Can be ordered through NLS. NLS. And the, 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 the book number is uh, 757. I think it's R... Ooh, what are the letters that come R C R C no, R M something. R M. But any library system can look it up. Of course, I, I looked it up myself at the Library of Congress National, um, you know, their, their website. But any library uses that as their uh, catalog. Okay, and, and, purchased, and purchased also through Amazon or it any bookstore in order. Through Amazon.com right. or any bookstore should okay. be able to order the print copy of the book. All right, we are, uh, we are, past, uh, we are past due, sir. I, well, I could talk to you all day, you know. You're, you're going to have to edit me, I suppose. Well, I'm gonna, I may do a little editing, not much. <laughs> much. Won't have to do much. You're a talker. There's no question about that. Rob um, Jacobs. I, I guess fine. I'm not sorry. That's, no, don't be sorry. I to give you, there's a lot of information to give. You know, 15 minutes is short to. to yes, give. sir. I'm, I'm going. I'm, we're 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 out. Rob Jacobs has been our guest from Boston. Songs of the Blind Snowbird. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Phil. I appreciate you calling and participating in your show. All right, I've got to order that. I think it would be a, a really neat book to read. Rob Jacobs, our guest. Don't forget about our gathering in Houston. If you're interested in coming November 5th, 6th, 7th, we'll go home on the 8th. That's uh, coming up pretty cool, about nine weeks from now. Uh, give us a call. 936-634-9500 is my number. Uh, email philpar at txucom.net. like to see you in Houston, Texas. We're going to record the 100th Blind Handyman Show and also a blind like me, Dale uh, Campbell's going to do a cooking in the dark, and we'll call that a blind like me so we can run them both on the same uh, day. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun. 936-634-9500. We have good rate on rooms. Um, 
make your flight reservations, email philpartx.com.net. See you next week for more Flying Like Me. Thanks for listening.